0: We're back to First John today. We took a little detour last week. We're back. Uh, today John is going to be telling us another piece of what it is to live the eternal life. Now, uh, since a lot of the ladies are gone, I thought maybe we could have a little honest discussion about the fact that as men, we are in danger of things called mid- midlife crises. I don't think I'm in a midlife crisis yet, um, but my sense is that you wouldn't know it if it was happening to you. I think everyone else would be able to tell that you're in the middle of it, but you'd think that what you're doing is normal. The reason that uh, midlife crises are a real problem for guys, from what I understand, and and to be fair, women can have a midlife crisis too. This isn't just a guy thing, but stereotypically, yeah, it's something that guys uh, struggle with. It's, uh, it's because men, uh, in general, for a large, you know, a large portion of men, it, uh, they're, they're kind of defining themselves by what they do, how they work. Uh, what they've created, what they've built, what they've done. And at a certain point, you start to feel deep in your bones the truth. And that is, you're not going to be here forever. And you start to look back at this legacy, this life that you're leading. And you start to realize that all of what you've done well, it's probably not going to last that long. In fact, um, with just a hundred years maybe, after you're gone, there will be pretty much no fingerprint that you leave behind. Death becomes real. And meaning becomes even more real. Because it starts to look as if there isn't any. Now, uh, the the world... um, you know, outside, non-Christian, secular folk, uh, they, they actually, um, they, they've been thinking about this a lot, because starting in about the 1800s, it became uh, very common, very popular, in fact, uh, especially for intellectuals, to not believe in God. Um, the idea being, this is what they say, I don't buy it, but they say that, well, now we've got science, uh, we can explain everything that used to be explained by God, and so now we don't need God. Um, we, can, we can sort of, we've figured it all out, and we sort of know what the universe is like. And, and as a result, since there is no God, we have to think about what our lives mean. And so, if you're familiar with existentialism, for example, existentialism is the, uh, a philosophy that tries to make sense of what it l- means to exist, to live I- in life. And the existentialists, because most of them were atheists, they realize that really what meaning is, it's what you create. It's something that you create in your life. And and the way the story works in the secular culture right now for us is you kind of look into yourself and into into your heart, and you find out the things that you like, that you enjoy, that give you, you know, some kind of satisfaction. And you do those things. And you keep doing them. And then you die. And hopefully, while you've been doing them, you've been sufficiently distracted... So that you don't think about the end, and you don't think about it, you don't recognize, you don't have to come to terms with in a deep way that none of this lasts, that none of it's real, and that at the end of the day, nobody cares. Which is a really positive, exciting philosophy, uh, giving lots of people (laughs) tons of hope. And so you can see, when you live in the the world that we live in, you can see that people are just brimming with, with possibility and opportunity, except they're not. Except we're not. And I wonder if it, it's even different for Christians. It might be that we as Christians have sort of like a, a faith-based version of this, right? Um, let's just look at our text briefly today, and, and you might even be able to see it. Um, this is First John 2, 1-2. to My little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin anymore. But if anyone does sin, we have a co-priest before the Father, Jesus Christ, the one who's truly righteous. He is the atonement sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but also the sins of the entire cosmos, universe, world. Well, maybe it's the case that what Christians are doing is basically the same thing as our friends in the, in the secular world, except that we're trying to sin less. Right? You can see it in, his, in, that, in that text. I, I'm writing these things so you don't sin anymore. But, but if you do, we've got, a, we've got a plan for you, we've got a solution for you. But maybe what we're really supposed to be doing is the same stuff distracting ourselves with the same things that we do with you know, education and, and marriage and work um, and, and grandchildren and training kids and, and all those things. And, and really, the, the difference is just that we try to be better a little bit because presumably God's watching and, and maybe, maybe we're trying to make sure that if, if we do the right stuff and he'll, he'll bless us, right? Which is, I, I think, a terrible way of thinking about God. But you can imagine, and maybe some of us have this, in our hearts. But the bottom line is this. Everyone is asking the same question. What is the point? What is the point of all of this? And for men of a certain age, this becomes especially real Because we start to see that all the things that we've built, all the things that we've fought for, all the things that we've been battling for may come to naught. And in the end, we'll be wiped away with the dust of history. But I think, I think that actually underneath this text, underneath this very text, Uh, that that John gives us, I think, is the logic, it's the understanding, a different way of seeing the universe, a different idea, a different possibility. And that if we attend to it, if we're careful and we think about it and we look at it and we listen closely to the language, I think we're going to see that God has a different way of doing things. God has a different answer to the question. It's not just distract yourself until you end up dead. It's something a lot deeper, something eternal, something real, something that I believe... Uh, today, we can actually take away some very practical, uh, not only an answer to that question, but practical ways of going about living it out. And so, uh, I invite you to, to, to come with me again as we, as we look at this text and try to, to get a little deeper and try to figure out what really is the point. My little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin anymore. But if anyone does sin, we have a co-priest before the Father, Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He is the atonement sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but also the sins of the entire universe." Uh, th- this language. Uh, y- if you're familiar with the New King James, you know that I've uh, made some changes here. Co-priest being, being one of them. We'll talk about that in a second. But what I really want to point out right now is that we we, we read this text, and we kind of read over it, and it's there's sacrifice, and there's this and that. But what's so interesting about this language is if you're, if you're in the first century, and you're roughly contemporary to Jesus or John who's writing, and you hear this language, the, the, it, it's like it's like an alarm bell goes off in your head. And you're thinking about one thing, especially especially if you're really familiar with Jewish religion. And what you're hearing is you're hearing temple language. You're hearing stuff that's, that reminds you of the Jerusalem temple and the sacrificial cult that goes on there. And so if we, it's not just in this text. Throughout 1 John, we, we can see it and we've actually looked at a few of these texts. Uh, but I just want to run through a couple examples. Uh, this is just before our text. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleaning katharizo in, in the Greek—that's a, a, a word that's almost always used in the Old Testament and the Septuagint to talk about the spattering of blood onto a priest, and this makes the priest uh, clean and, and okay to go before God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and, and we brought up the example of, you know, imagine that um, your family has invited you to a really nice dinner at a really nice place, you know, five stars. And you've been working all day, um, I, I said in the mines... Apparently there are no miners here, not West Virginia, but if there were, you've been working all day in the mines, you're, you're covered in soot, you've been sweating because you've been, you know, you have a pickaxe, which is how they mine still, I think, no, probably not. You, you've got your pickaxe and, you, and you've been going at it all day and you're covered in soot and sweat, you smell, you're gross, and you look at your watch and you realize the dinner is about to happen right now, so you, you just forget going home and changing, you just show up at this beautiful restaurant th- with your wonderful family, looking just a complete mess, smelling terrible, and you sit there down and say, hey, let's have a great dinner. And everyone looks at you like, get out of here. (laughs) How dare you? Uh, This is, we we really, we're spending a lot of money on you. Uh, You know, this is going to be a big deal. And and you you can't even bother to show up in, in a way that's presentable. Well, very similarly, in the Old Testament, priests had to be cleaned Because priests were going to go and they were going to be in front of God and they were going to worship and lead the people in worship and mediate between God and the people. And in order to do that, they had to be just right. And so they needed this spackling, this cleansing. So you hear this language in 1 John, all you're thinking about is the temple and the priests. Here's another one. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, just as Jesus, is pure. Well, purification is another example of, of temple language. We hear purify, and we think of, like, be good. Uh, like, stop being bad. But really, in the, in the first century, purification is a, it's a very s- uh, serious set of rites that you go through to be holy and right before God. As again, it, it's f- specifically for priests, um, and then the people that they uh, then are able to give rituals to help purify. This is an interesting one that may surprise you. Uh, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. We do this all the time. You know, it's, Let's be honest. Sometimes we treat prayer as kind of like a way to you know, share news with people. It's like, oh, I need you to pray for me because this is happening. And so it's like, oh, all right. But presumably then, once the news has been transferred, we're supposed to go and pray for each other, right? And that's not a big deal to us. We're totally normal. We, yeah, that sounds great. It's actually really weird when if you're in the first century. That we call this intercessory prayer, prayer on behalf of another. Uh, in, in the ancient world, and especially in the first century, this wasn't something that people did for each other, because it was reserved for a special group of people, the priests. Only priests were the ones who were qualified and ready to give prayer on behalf of another person. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, try to think back to one or two examples of somebody praying on behalf of another person or, another, or an entire nation. If you're really savvy, you'll recognize A, it doesn't happen that often, and B, when it does, it's almost always a priest doing it. In fact, the occasional time that it's not a priest doing it, uh, that person's acting as a priest. Uh, Moses is not a priest, but he does pray for for Israel on behalf of Israel. And it's crazy, in Psalm 99, reflecting on this, um, the scriptures say that Moses and Aaron were priests before God when they cried out to him. Priestly, uh, it was the job of the priests to pray on behalf of the people. And so I think we have really good... uh, reason for thinking that all throughout first john there's an idea about what christian life is and and this is the first thing in your note sheets john assumes john assumes that christians are priests and the church is a renewed temple christians are priests and the church is a renewed temple well, if we kind of keep that in mind, I think that we can go back to the text. I think uh, some stuff's going to jump out at us. So um, let's, let's look for, uh, again briefly at the text. My little children, I write these things to you so you don't sin anymore. But if you do, we have a co-priest before the Father. And he is the atonement sacrifice for our sins. And not ours only, but also the sins of the entire cosmos. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty scary. I... Um, that right there, co-priest before the Father. I'm translating it that way. I'm, I've been working on this uh, this commentary, First, Second, and Third John. I'm really, really behind, um, and so I I don't know what I'm going to do here. But um, I got to start maybe waking up earlier um, because I really got to get going. But that uh, right there, it's my translation. I presented this in San Antonio last year um, before a whole bunch of Bible nerds, and it was I was it was really scary because um, these people are like kind of big deal people in the world of Bible nerds, and um, I I, I was expecting, because I I go to these things um, every year, and so I know that, uh, you know, you expect like 15, maybe maybe 15, 20 people to be in the audience for any particular lecture or paper being read. I got there, and there was like 150 people there, Um, and I was like, oh, no, and 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 not only that, but I was recognizing some of them, like, oh, my goodness, I'm talking in front of... Uh, the reason was there was actually another f- uh, famous scholar <laughs> who was presenting right before me. Um, so they paid attention to her paper, and they just sort of, in one ear, out the other, on mine. But anyway, uh, I-, I-, I translate co-priest there because it turns out that um, uh, the word there behind there is paraclete. Um, it-, it usually gets translated advocate or helper, if you remember in the Gospel of John. Um, the Holy Spirit is our, our helper or advocate. Um, but we have an example from Jewish theology of, of the time, uh, Philo, who was an Alexandrian dr- a Jew, and he, um, he uses this word to talk about temple worship. And he uses this word to talk about a priest who has a co-priest, a helper, who goes with him to make uh, the priestly sacrifices work. Um, because there's a problem with priests. Priests don't have enough in themselves. They're not pure enough. They're not holy enough. And so Philo thinks you've got to have someone with you, a co-priest, to help you, to, to, to be on your side, to, to, to kind of be holy enough almost to do the work of, of the temple and then the atonement sacrifice for our sins this is the word helasmos and it's the moment um, where Jesus is likened to the Yom Kippur sacrifice this is a, a temple sacrifice that happened once a year the day of atonement and at this sacrifice um, the, the, the lamb takes care uh, of the sins of all the people Um, everyone is covered when the priest um, slaughters this animal and then there's another ritual where a goat is is set free, the scapegoat. When these things are done, the people are finally clean. They're finally sinless. They're purified. And we're told right now that Jesus is that once for all for us and not just us, but the whole universe. One of the things that we um, don't understand a lot of times is we don't recognize that sin isn't just the choices that we make. Sin isn't just what we do. Sin is actually kind of like a a, a virus. It's like a disorder that wrecks the whole universe. Right now, you and I, we live in the world, we look outside here, and, and we look at what's going on, and we're like, this place is a mess. And it's not just, it's not only just the choices that people make, although that's primarily part of it, but the whole world is broken. The whole world is, is messed up. It's not the way that it was meant to be. It's not good. It's not right. It's not perfect. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's, it's wrecked, badly wrecked. And here we are trying to wonder how to live in light of that. Here, how, here we are trying to wonder, what are we supposed to do? Well, th- the way the Jews thought about it was that the temple was the place where this was made right. The, the temple was the place where a sacrifice was made and prayers were offered. An encounter with God happened and it set everything right, even for just a little while, the way that it's supposed to be. So the next thing in your note sheets, the temple was the place where an encounter with God would set the world to rights. Why are we here? Why are we here today? Let's be honest. I started going to church because I had to. Uh, I had no choice. And when I was a kid, I hated it. That's not true. I, but I did strongly dislike it for a lot of the time. Once I started, when I was here, you know, back in the 90s, um, I, they, they, all the high schoolers, they didn't get to go with Scott to the barn and, like, have, like, fun time, you know, with, with licorice and stuff. No, we sat here and we listened to a lecture every week. And it was long. You know, here's the deal. The good news is, I'm like, I'm super on time. You're out of here like 15 after, done deal, no problem. When Arch was here, it was like 10,000 years. I mean, people, it was unreal. You're sitting there, and imagine, I'm a 14-year-old kid sitting there, and he's like, it's fire and brimstone. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, and just, just railing on us over and over. You have no hope. You've got to have grace. And it just never ended. So why did I go to church? Because I had to. Apparently my parents thought it was good to subject me to that every week. And then at a certain point, I started going to church because it was habit, right? Well, that's what you do. You know, that's what Sunday is for, church. So let's try and find some place that's as entertaining as possible. That's what I did when I went to college. So I went to a charismatic church for a while. Very entertaining. A lot of fun at charismatic churches. They're jumping up and down, having a great time. Um, I, I, went to liturgical churches and Anglican Episcopalian church, uh, cause that was, you know, but it, it was kind of habit and I was looking for something to kind of fill up the time because I knew I was supposed to, right? I know now, um, as a, as a father, you know, a lot of, a lot of us bring our, go to church so we can bring our kids. They don't listen to us, right? But presumably they'll listen to Jesus so we can, we can get them, uh, sorted out by bringing them to church, um. Maybe we want to learn something, right? We come to church because uh, presumably um, there's, some, there's some knowledge in the Bible that um, is valuable to us, and if we can just get it, then we'll be better off, right? Um, and, and that's been very traditional in, in our church. We're a teaching church. We look at the, the actual words of the text, you know, and we dig in. That's not what church is about. Church is a place where we encounter God. And in and through our worship, we are reminded that Jesus Christ has set the world to rights. That the world has been fixed. That the disorder, the skewing that we experience every time we're out there has been set in place, it has been put back. And when we're here, what we're really doing is we're not getting some facts, although that's important and we need to do that. We're not here because our kids are going to become better. We're we're not here because this is a habit that we do. We're here because we have been called to encounter the living God, to meet him face-to-face in some transformational way so that we are with him, we are changed by him. And as a result of that, we go out into the world and we are a part of his setting everything to rights. The Old Testament, when the priest would get up there, he would do his ritual, and then he would have that intercessory prayer on behalf of the world. He would say things that are absolutely untrue by any objective measure. He would say, God, you have created peace on earth. And in that moment, what he was testifying to was that God had created peace on earth. That whatever peace was there was from Yahweh God. And God was the one who was going to create it and sustain it. And he was looking forward to a time when God would bring that in all of its fullness. That what is said here in this place amongst us by the power of the Spirit is the real truth about the universe. And it makes the universe that way because God's power is in it. God's Spirit is powerful and doing it. And and the problem with the Old Testament was that these these priests, they didn't have... They were bad people. They were like me and like you. They were sinful. They were wrecked. They were just as infected by the disorder as the people they were supposed to be praying for. And so God says, I'm going to do what you couldn't do. I'm going to send a once-for-all sacrifice. A sacrifice that won't quit. That will never give up. This sacrifice is going to clean it all. Blank slate. Absolutely pure. Pure. So that now you can go and be what I've called you to be. You can be setting the world in order again. We're not here for habit, we're not here to be taught our morality, we're not here to learn a couple of cool facts. We are here to encounter the living God, to be transformed by him, and to participate with him as he fixes the universe. And this begins with faith. The first thing we do is we trust because we can't be that atoning sacrifice. There is no sacrifice we can provide. Jesus has done it. We access that simply by trusting God. That's it. That's it. There's nothing else. That's where it starts, but that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. And then, as the Spirit moves us, we begin to participate with him as God shapes and and, and reshapes and straightens out the whole world. What are we doing here? I think, for a lot of us, we think we're playing this game. The game of life. Look at that family. I mean, wow. Can you imagine any father playing that game looking like that? Have you played this game? Oh my gosh. I've played it twice in my life. The first time, I think I was in the fourth grade, I had a teacher who invited us to her house to play the game of life and have dinner. Cool. I barely remember it. Um, I played it again because we purchased uh, a copy of this game, and I was going to play it with my kids, who are way too young for it, by the way. And I was like, wait, what? So you're telling me that this game is like you start out as like, you know, I guess you're starting at life. And you and the whole thing is you roll dice to find out whether or not or you spin a thing to to like find out how much education you get. And then you find out if you fall in love. And then find out if you get married and then have kids. And you're just going through the motions, right? And this is supposed to create a, a tremendous joy. This is the most depressing game I have ever seen. Like it is... It, it, can you... Here's the thing, you can, uh, you can see on the board, like, there's all these twists and turns. Where do you think that path ends? Like, when you finally get to the end of it, what, you win? <laughs> uh, no, you've gone through your entire life, and it's over! And these, they're, they're like, oh, let's play again, Dad. Oh, you only get to play the game of life once. Yeah, we, we think we're playing this game. We're just going through the motions. We're doing the thing. You know, uh, I got to do this. I got to do that. got to make sure that, 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 that distraction, 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 distraction. You know what? If we follow John's logic, we're playing a different game. We're playing this game. Oh, oh, yeah. I, there's a watermark because, you know, I, Google images, right? Um, but it, the game of global domination. Awesome. That's fun. Oh, that's different, okay, we're, you know, not, not riding in a car, getting, you know, spouses and children, no, 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 we're taking over the world, yeah, and what's cool about Risk too, I mean, if you've played this game, it's like a six to seven hour game, I mean, it never ends, it's just, you, and it's like a slow war of attrition, you know, you start out with like your five best friends, and by the end of the game, you have no best friends, you have no friends at all, the people have like tossed the board aside, uh, it's an awesome game though, a lot of fun. Only fun if you win, but a lot of fun. My favorite part about Risk is, um, if you know the game, uh, it's like there's North and South America. You, you take over North and South America, and then you start to mass all of your troops in Alaska, right? And then, so you just get like just oodles and oodles of troops in, in Alaska, and you get ready to cross over, to go west into Asia, and take Kamchatka, it's what they call it. I don't know if that's a real word, but uh, it, it's like Siberia. It's like where the gulag is. And, and so the, the people in Asia, they're getting their defenses ready because it's like the one access point. You send your guys over. There's a huge, bloody, terrible battle. There's slaughter left and right, and then you invade Asia. And you know, you're not affected by like, winter or anything. This is not, you know, when Napoleon tried to invade Asia, you know, he got frozen out. I think that happened in World War II. There's no weather in risk, so it's just about numbers. It's a lot more fun. So you're going through, you're cruising through Asia, and every time you, you capture a new territory, you like leave a couple of your, your guys behind to kind of be like a garrison, and you're just invading, you're going to take over the whole world. And then eventually you get stopped. And then the person in Asia like fights back and starts pressing through. If we're following John's logic, right? He says, hey, really, Christians are the new priests, Right? And the church, Big C Church, that is anybody who believes, um, that's the new temple, right? And, and if that's the case, then we don't have to wait for the temple to stay at Jerusalem anymore. In fact, the temple is anywhere we are. In fact, the temple can be any place that we go. In fact, there's a whole bunch of territory all around you. And that, temp- that territory, it needs to be the temple. Why? Because the temple is that place, that one place on earth where... The world is set to rights by the power of God. You have been called to expand this temple, to move it out, to get bigger, to take Kamchatka and Asia. You have been called to move from where you are to where you have been called to go. You are in the process of global domination. Don't get it twisted. This, uh, it's a guy sermon, right? Oh, conquering stuff. You know, achieving things. I like that. Except that we're not achieving things on our strength, right? It's not us who does it. That's the whole point of this text. There's an atoning sacrifice. One. Jesus is the one who did it. But we are called. We are called to participate with him. Because did you hear at the end? Did you hear at the end of it? He wasn't just covering up our disorder. But also the disorder of the whole world. All of it. North and South America, Kamchatka, Asia, Australia, all of it. The universe, in fact, that word means the universe. The Milky Way. Everything. It's all been set right in and through Jesus' blood. And now, we are called. We are our mission. It's to participate with him. To follow God's leading. To be with the Spirit. And to go out and be a part of this global, universal domination. Not what we do, of course, but participating with, listening to the the movement of the Spirit, where the Spirit's calling us to go, and and being Jesus' hands and feet, to being his voice, uh, inviting people into the word. That is what we've been called to do and to be. Last thing on your note sheets. Turn every territory into a temple. Turn every territory into a temple. Be a part of this mission that God has set for the people, for his people in the world to go and own it, to take it, to be a part of it. I I was thinking about this. I mean, it's so so easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, do it. I think think really there's maybe like four ways, four places where this is what we're called to do. The first, uh, and perhaps the most obvious, is um, in the conversion of, of unturned hearts. People that we know, our friends, our family, coworkers, whatever. People who are far away from God, who need to be a part of God, to, to, to need, uh, who need Jesus' salvation, his forgiveness of sins, who need to be invited in. Yeah, that's the beginning. And we've talked before about strategies and tactics of how to do this. You don't have to just be a Bible beater. But instead, you can uh, invite people to think about that question. What does it all mean what's the point do you know what you're a part of that's that's one sure but there's also um i i think some more uh one so that's a territory territory is unconverted hearts but what about what about those hearts that are out there who have kind of just sort of fallen away they're just not that interested anymore You know, people, or, or they are interested, but they're making mistakes and they're, they're messed up. One of the interesting things about that text is Jesus is the atoning sacrifice and, and in that, in context, it's something that goes on over and over and over again. See, our hearts, even though we've been saved, they still get cluttered up and they mess with our relationship with God and with each other. And, and one of the texts we looked at was about how we pray for those who, who are in that situation. Yeah, we believe. Yeah, but we're, we're messed up and we're, we're disordered. One of the territories that needs to be taken are people who believe but are corrupted, disordered, to go and set them back on the right path. That is a legitimate place, a legitimate way to be taking territory for God. And it's not just hearts, it's not just individuals that territory includes. I mean, the temple was a place. God is looking to convert spaces. There are secular spaces out there that we all live in. Day in, day out. And those two can be converted. The club that you were a part of. The soccer league that you... Man. So, you know, women are gone. Um, I, yeah. So, Doug came over with his kids on Friday night. And, uh, you know, they're, they're so sweet. And I love them to death. But they also like to stay up late. And my kids also like to stay up late. Normally, when, when, the, when the women are around, there's some... But Doug and I let him stay up till, like, you know, midnight, 1230. No big deal, though, right? Because uh, Alice has a soccer game the next day at 11 o'clock. She is literally falling asleep on the fields. <laughs> like, her eyes, her eyes like bags underneath her eyes. Like, like where's the ball? What am I doing here? And if I had been a good father, I would have, like, run out and just held her and took her away. But I just had her suffer right through it. And, uh, and, and then I took her home and, uh, and put her to bed for a couple hours. Um... Yeah, so, yeah, I'm not sure uh, why I brought that up. But, oh, secular space, right. Soccer. Your soccer team. Your club that you're a part of. Um, The things that you do when you're not here. The The place you like to hang out. That, too, is space that is ready to be converted into a temple. A place where God's way is being set in. Where sin, the disorder that it creates, is being rectified and put right. That too is a place that requires our prayer and to be straightened out. Um, one of my uh, one of the favorite things I, I remember, um, Lou told me once. Uh, Lou uh, works in law enforcement. And law enforcement's public space can't really talk about your faith that much there. But he did talk about the fact that he's able, in his own heart, to be pushing um, for the kind of values and virtues um, that are in keeping with the Lord and and, and the way that God wants things done. And he can do that, even though he can't talk about Jesus too much. But he can push for those things to become a part of the culture and, and, and the place that he's in. In the middle of that, he is seizing territory for Christ. He is in putting in place the, 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 the way and, and character and, 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 and desire of God into a place that doesn't normally have it. That is a way that we can seize territory. We can turn it into a temple. And, and there's another place. Uh, um, so there's unconverted hearts, converted hearts, secular space, sacred space, too, needs to be claimed. That's places like this, the church, parachurch organizations. You know, you're running through Kamchatka and you're clearing out the area and you're seizing territory and seizing territory. If you're not careful, you don't leave enough of a garrison behind, right? You've only got like one or two troops. And, and those troops are weak and they fall apart. And so what looks like this grand empire is actually a paper tiger because it just just one, one assault will just carve it all up. One of the things that's dangerous for us as Christians is we can be a part of Institutions that, that rot in the core. If we don't constantly be on the lookout and reform them and, and think for the ways that they need to be changed and kept and put back in line with the gospel, back in line with the grace of God, back in line with his nature and character. And that too is a mission, a territory that you can be a part of seizing, is looking at, coast, or looking at your Bible study, or your small group, or your Bible study fellowship, or whatever it is that you do that is a sacred space, and seeing how can this be re-harnessed, re-engaged, re-fortified for the kingdom. What's the point? You're on the game of life, and we're all headed in the same direction. And if you're wondering what it's all for, what it's all about. It's that human beings were meant to encounter God and be a part of his right ordering of the universe. That's it. We have been called to be a part of that. And and the reason that's so critical is because it is the one thing in our lives that is truly eternal It's the one thing in our lives that will truly last long beyond anything that we can imagine being here. Our children and grandchildren and sometimes great-grandchildren. This is something that even though we don't see the end of it, we will see the end of it on the last day when we are gathered together in the Lord's arms. And we will see the impact that we had as we were participating with the expansion of God's kingdom in the world. It is the one thing you can be a part of that will actually never fade that will actually never stop. It's the one thing that you can be a part of that you'll be rewarded for, that God himself in eternity will look and say, look what you did. When everything else fades, the territory that you, in cooperation with the Spirit, seized for God will not. And if you're asking yourself, what's the point? and you're battling through your midlife crisis. Think then instead about what is eternal. Know that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice and has set everything right and has invited all of us to be a part of it. Imagine what would happen if we in this church took this and owned it and seized it and went with it. If we in this church decided we're going to be a part of that vision, God's vision, we are simply going to put all everything else aside. You know, I know we got to work because we got to make money. I'm with that. But instead, we're like, instead, we were like, let's seize territory. Because it's the only thing, the only thing that will last. Brothers and sisters, turn every territory into a temple, a place where God is worshiped. And encountered, and where the world is set to rights. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will um, seize territory for you, (laughs) that we will um, quit the game of life and start the game of risk, that we will be sensitive to where your spirit is leading that we will look for hearts that need conversion, hearts that need purification, uh, secular spaces that need to become sacred and sacred spaces that need to be reformed. God, I pray that we will be your vanguard, that this church will be your seekers of territory, and that you will bless us with eternal, lasting value and fruit. We ask this all in the name of your son, amen.